welcome to this seminar. Uh, my name is Stein Sundstøl Eriksen. I'm a research professor here at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. And I'm pleased to see so many of you here for this uh, talk, which is part of a series of talks that we are holding on uh, political development in uh, Europe. And the whole uh, series is uh, sponsored by the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, the topic of today's seminar is populism, which could hardly be more uh, central to understand the current conjecture of in uh, politics in both in Europe and elsewhere. And we are very happy to have to t uh, here to talk to us about this topic today, Professor Rogers Brubaker from the University of California in Los Angeles, who also has an affiliation with the uh, University of Oslo the, at the Department of Sociology there. In fact, he's here because of that affiliation, and I just found out, about, found out last week that he was going to be here this week, and uh, I thought that this was really an opportunity to try to get Professor Brubaker here to come to talk at NUPI about the issue of uh, populism, of which, on which he has written several papers in the last couple of years. Um, at least three that I have come across and read, which I found really interesting. One entitled Why Populism, which was published last year or 2017 in uh, the journal Theory and Society. And another one that just came out on uh, nationalism and populism. Uh, Professor Brubaker is a world-leading and well-known sociologist, and he's especially known for his work on nationalism, citizenship, ethnicity, and the uh, politics of identity. He has written several influential books in these topics, amongst others, uh, citizenship and Nationhood in Germany and France, and one entitled Nationalism Reframed, and one Ethnicity Without Groups, and most recently, I think, a collection of essays entitled Grounds for Difference. So with this background, he certainly has a very uh, solid foundation for his recent work on the analysis of uh, populism. And uh, I very much look forward to hearing his uh, reflections on the topic today. So with that, uh, please, Professor Brubaker. Thank you very much for those kind remarks, for the invitation to talk. It's a commonplace to say that we've been living through an extraordinary pan-European and trans-Atlantic populist moment, from the Brexit and Trump shocks through the Italian elections and Brazilian elections of last year to the European Parliament elections of this summer. Populism has been in the headlines, and not just right-wing populism. Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece, the Melanchon and Sanders insurgencies, the election of Lopez Obrador in Mexico have shown the strength of left populism in recent years. 
And then the Ukrainian elections this past spring presented the spectacle of a postmodern anti-political media populism of indeterminate political content, a populism of pure rejection with a large dose of what has been called in other contexts politainment. Uh, Italy's shape-shifting and currently struggling five-star movement, of course also headed by a comedian, is likewise hard to classify on a left-right axis. But the main action, of course, has been on the right or far-right. Anti-immigrant populist parties are, of course, in no way a new phenomenon in Europe. They go back several decades, but they've, of course, enjoyed a surge of support in recent years and electoral breakthroughs of the Sweden Democrats and the Alternative for Germany have brought anti-immigrant populist parties to countries in which they had long been conspicuously weak or absent, while the far-right Vox party made a similar breakthrough in the Spanish election in April. Meanwhile, the regimes of Viktor Orban in Hungary and the Law and Justice Party in Poland have tightened their increasingly authoritarian grip on power. Now, all of these have been called populist, as of course have many figures elsewhere, such as Prime Minister Modi of India, President Duterte of the Philippines, President Erdogan of Turkey. But do they really belong together? Are we, in fact, living through a pan-European and transatlantic populist moment? Or is the term populism just a journalistic cliché or a political epithet that serves more to stigmatize than to analyze? Or perhaps is it a massive misnomer that misdiagnoses as populist what ought to be called simply nationalist or nativist? Now, easy recourse to loose and loaded words like populism can certainly be a form of intellectual laziness that substitutes labeling for analysis, but I want to argue that populism can be construed in a way that makes it a useful analytical category, indeed one that is indispensable for characterizing the present moment. But if this is the case, then a second set of questions arises, namely what explains the clustering in time and space that constitutes the populist moment. So why populism, why here, and why now? So the question in my title, why populism, is in fact two questions. The first is a question about populism as a phenomenon. Um, sorry, the first is a question about populism as a term or concept. The second, a question about populism as a phenomenon in the world. Uh, or to put it somewhat differently, the first is a question about how to name and characterize the present conjuncture, while the second is a question about how to explain that conjuncture. I want to say something about both of these questions this morning, but I'll focus primarily on the first question, that is on populism as an analytical category, and I'll say a bit less towards the end of my remarks about the second question, the question of explanation, limiting the scope of my remarks in that part of the talk to Europe and North America. So for half a century, the literature on populism has been haunted by doubts about the nature and even about the existence of its object of analysis. Students of populism have put forward three major reasons for skepticism about populism as a category of analysis. The first is that the term lumps together disparate political 
projects, right and left, urban and rural, neoliberal and protectionist, inclusionary and exclusionary, mobilizing and demobilizing. Yes, all claim somehow to speak in the name of the people and against various elites, but the people is of course a deeply ambiguous notion with three main meanings. It can refer to the common or ordinary people, that is the people as plebs. It can refer to the sovereign people, that is to the people as demos. And it can refer to the bounded or culturally or ethnically distinct people, to the people as nation or community. To speak in the name of the little people against those on top would seem to imply a politics of redistribution. To speak in the name of the sovereign people against ruling elites would seem to imply a politics of redemocratization. And to speak in the name of the bounded or culturally or ethnically distinct people against threatening outside groups or forces would seem to imply a politics of protectionism or cultural or ethnic nationalism. So the critic goes, uh, what could be gained by subsuming these very different forms of politics under the label populism? The second problem is that populism is often defined so broadly as to be virtually ubiquitous. And indeed, speaking in the name of the people is a chronic and ubiquitous practice in democratic settings. But if populism is everywhere, then it is nowhere in particular and it disappears as a distinct phenomenon. The third problem is that the term populism is a morally and politically charged term. It's a weapon of political struggle as much as a tool of scholarly analysis. It's often used by journalists and politicians, for example, to stig stigmatize and delegitimize appeals to the people against the elite and to characterize such appeals as dangerous or irrational or manipulative or demagogic. While others, on the other hand, reclaim the term as democratic rather than demagogic. And scholars, too, are deeply divided. Some prominent scholars, notably Jan Werner Müller, build disapproval into the very definition of populism. They define it as intrinsically anti-democratic. But in a mirror reversal, others, especially those in the tradition of Ernesto Leclaude, define populism as intrinsically democratic. Indeed, as the very essence of politics as distinct from administration. And they criticize liberal anti-populists for their thin, indeed anemic conception of democracy, which they see as in effect a conception of democracy without a demos. So the third problem is this. If populism is such a deeply contested and morally and politically charged category of practice, then how can it serve as a useful term of analysis? Now these are important objections, but I think they can be addressed by treating populism as a discursive and stylistic repertoire. And here I build on the well-established discursive and stylistic turn in the study of populism, a turn that has allowed scholars to capture the discursive, rhetorical, and stylistic commonalities that cut across substantively quite different forms of politics. This repertoire metaphor has three useful implications for the study of populism. In the first place, it suggests a limited 
though historically variable, set of relatively standardized elements that are well known to and available to be drawn on by political actors. Yet, while the elements are more or less standardized and in some ways even scripted, they leave room at the same time for improvisation and elaboration. Indeed, they must be filled out with particular content and adapted to local circumstances. So as general discursive templates, all of the elements can be elaborated in very different directions and specifically in ways that link up with projects and stances of the right or the left. And this helps make sense of the deep political and ideological ambivalence of populism and it helps to account both for the democratic energies populism may harness and for the anti-democratic dangers it may represent. Secondly, the repertoire metaphor suggests that instances of populism are related by what Wittgenstein, writing about the difficulty of defining a game, famously called a family resemblance, rather than by strictly logical criteria. So just as there may be no common features shared by all games, but instead what Wittgenstein called a complicated network of similarities overlapping and crisscrossing, so too it may not be fruitful to seek to specify a necessary or sufficient set of elements for characterizing a party or a politician or a discourse as populist. A further implication of this family resemblance uh, idea is that elements of the repertoire taken individually are not uniquely populist, but that it's rather the combination of elements rather than the use of individual elements from the repertoire that's characteristic of populism. I'll argue in a moment that populism, um, the repertoire of populism is indeed built around a core element, the, namely the claim to speak and act in the name of the people. But even this core element, though empirically predominant, is neither conceptually necessary nor empirically universal and it can be combined in varying ways with other elements from the populist repertoire, each of which can be given different weights or inflections. The third um, aspect of the repertoire metaphor that I want to highlight is that it suggests a, a way of responding to the claim that populism is ubiquitous and therefore can't serve as a useful analytical category. For while the repertoire is indeed chronically available in contemporary democratic settings, it's not chronically deployed. The cultural resonance and the political traction of the various elements of the repertoire can vary systematically across contexts, political, economic, and cultural contexts. And moreover, the repertoire is drawn on unevenly within a given context. That is, some political actors shun the repertoire altogether, others draw on it only occasionally or minimally, still others draw more chronically and fully on a wider range of elements from the repertoire. So populism can be understood as a matter of degree, not a sharply bounded phenomenon that is either present or absent. Uh, but it's not only a matter of degree, populisms also differ qualitatively in the combinations of elements that they draw on and in the directions in which the elements are elaborated. So all of this, of course, is very abstract, speaking of elements and repertoire, so let me try to make it more concrete now. If we think of 
populism as a repertoire of fairly standardized elements. Well, what are these standardized elements? So the, the core element, which is universally recognized as central to populism, is the claim to speak and act in the name of the people. But this claim is central to democracy, not just to populism. So the literature usually adds the specification that populism involves the claim to speak and act in the name of the people and against the elite. In the influential view of Kas Mude, for example, populism is defined by a vision of society um, as divided between the pure people and the corrupt elite. Uh, but I'm not persuaded that the people are always represented as pure, uh, even if they are always valorized in some way. And corruption seems to me to be one of only many failings ascribed to elites, not always the most important one. More fundamentally, I would argue, populism is based not only on the vertical opposition between the people and the elite, but also, I will argue, on the horizontal opposition between inside and outside. The core element of the populist repertoire, in my view, is thus better understood as the invocation of the people in a twofold opposition, at once vertical and horizontal, against those on top and also sometimes those on the bottom, um, on the one hand, and against an alien or threatening outside on the other hand, generally in such a way that those on top are simultaneously represented as being outside or different. So vertical and horizontal oppositions, I want to argue, are constitutively intertwined in populist discourse. So I'm going to try to explain that, again, rather abstract formulation. Um, first by treating the vertical and horizontal oppositions separately, then by showing how they characteristically intertwine. So in the vertical dimension, the people are defined, of course, in opposition to economic, political, and cultural elites. The people are represented as morally decent, though not necessarily as pure. Uh, they're represented as economically struggling, hardworking, family-oriented, plain-spoken, endowed with common sense, while the elite, the rich, the powerful, the well-connected, the overeducated, the institutionally empowered are seen as living in different worlds, as playing by different rules, as insulated from economic hardships, and as out of touch with the concerns and problems of ordinary people. Uh, but the people, as I indicated a moment ago, can be defined not only in relation to those on top, but also still in the vertical dimension in relation to those on the bottom. This downward focus of populist anger and resentment has been less widely discussed in the literature than the upward focus, but it's often equally important. Those on the bottom may be represented as parasites or spongers, as addicts or deviants, as disorderly or dangerous, as undeserving of benefits and unworthy of respect, and thus as not belonging to the so-called decent, healthy, normal, hardworking people. Now in the horizontal dimension, the people are understood as somehow bounded, a bounded collectivity, and the basic contrast is between inside and outside. Left-wing populism, I use the term as a kind of shorthand, though it's not unproblematic, construes this bounded collectivity in economic or political terms and identifies the threatening outside with things like unfettered trade, 
unregulated globalization, the European Union, or especially in Latin America, American imperialism, while right-wing populism, again, the label is not entirely adequate, construes the people as a culturally or ethnically bounded collectivity with a shared and distinctive way of life and sees that collectivity as threatened by outside groups or forces, including, of course, internal outsiders, that is, those living on the inside who are seen as belonging to the outside. Now, what I want to emphasize here, uh, since it's characteristic of the present conjuncture, is the tight discursive interweaving of the vertical opposition to those on top and the horizontal opposition to outside groups or forces. So in the present conjuncture, characteristic of left as well as right populism, economic, political, and cultural elites are represented as outside, in addition to being on top. That is, they are seen not only as being comfortably insulated from the economic struggles of ordinary people, but also as differing in their culture, in their values, in their way of life. They are seen as culturally, as well as economically mobile, in effect as rootless cosmopolitans, indifferent to the bounded solidarities of community and nation. Their affective and cultural as well as their economic investments are seen as moving easily across national boundaries while their moral self-understanding, their cultural identity, their economic fate are seen as delinked from those of the nationally bounded people. Now, left-wing variants of this intertwining of horizontal and vertical oppositions are more likely to emphasize the elite's economic outsiderhood and their supranational or global economic ties, horizons, and commitments, while right-wing right variants are more likely to emphasize elite's cultural outsiderhood. They criticize elites for welcoming immigrants and financially supporting refugees while neglecting the hard-working native population and for favoring mixing and multiculturalism while denouncing ordinary people as racist and Islamophobic, as Hillary Clinton infamously did when she characterized Trump supporters as a, quote, basket of deplorables. Now, in addition to this core element, this invocation of the people in simultaneously horizontal and vertical dimensions, I want to sketch briefly five additional elements of the populist repertoire, which are best understood, I think, as elaborations or specifications of that vertical opposition between people and elite or the horizontal opposition between inside and outside. My account of these um, additional elements is informed by my concern with Europe and North America, but I think all five um, are more broadly relevant. The first of these is what I will call antagonistic repoliticization. Now, this has been emphasized by theorists and defenders of left populism, especially by those working in the tradition of Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe. What do I mean by antagonistic repoliticization? I mean the claim to reassert democratic political control over domains of life that are seen as having been depoliticized and as it were de-democratized that is removed from the realm of democratic decision making. So this may involve opposition to the infamous claim that there is no alternative 
to neoliberal economic policies. It may involve opposition to the extension of administrative or technocratic or juridical at the expense of political modes of decision making. It may involve opposition to the stifling of debate about fundamental political questions that can result from, say, grand coalitions or from ideologically indistinguishable groupings of major parties, or it may involve opposition to the abdication of key aspects of national sovereignty to the EU with its deep democratic deficit and so on. In all of these cases, contentious repoliticization has an anti-elite thrust in that elites are represented, plausibly enough, as distrusting the people and thus as favoring modes of decision-making that are insulated from the pressures, the passions, the putative irrationalities of democratic politics. So contentious repoliticization draws sharp and antagonistic boundaries between the people and the elite. Liberal critics of populism denounce this polarizing language as Manichaean, but supporters of populism on the left and on the right defend the antagonistic language and the energies it can mobilize. The second element um, is majoritarianism. That is the assertion of the interests, the rights, the will of the majority against those of minorities. Majoritarian claims may be directed against those on top, those on the bottom, those at the margins. They may challenge the privileged few in the name of the many, but they also may challenge the rights and benefits accorded to those on the bottom. For example, they may challenge um, in the U.S. context certain forms of welfare benefits, for example, or the procedural protections of criminal law for which the decent, hardworking majority must allegedly bear the cost, or they may challenge efforts to promote the interests, protect the rights, or recognize the dignity of marginal groups, marginal defined by religion, race, or ethnicity, immigration status, sexuality, or gender. They may reject discourses and practices of multiculturalism, diversity, or minority rights, seeing these as disadvantaging or symbolically devaluing those in the mainstream. So majoritarianism, again highlights the ideological indeterminacy and ambivalence of populism. The third element is what I call anti-institutionalism. This um, is of course a selective anti-institutionalism. When in power, populists construct their own institutions and seek to dominate and work through existing ones, but populism is an ideology of immediacy. And as such, it distrusts the mediating functions of institutions. It claims to promote direct rather than representative democracy. And even as populists seek to exploit or control the established media, they also seek to bypass it and to communicate directly with their supporters, as of course Trump and others have done through Twitter and other social media platforms. Populist anti-institutionalism also distrusts the complexity and the opacity of institutional mediation and the pluralism and autonomy of institutions. So Trump, for example, has ferociously attacked the legitimacy of the mainstream media and the legitimacy of the courts as well, while Hungary's Fidesz regime has pursued a comprehensive institutional Gleichschaltung that has subordinated courts, 
media, the economy, and academic and cultural institutions to the party state. The fourth element in the repertoire is protectionism, uh, the claim to protect the people against threats, again, from above, from below, or from outside. Um, I distinguish economic, securitarian, and cultural protectionism, all three being central to the present conjuncture. Economic protectionism highlights the threats to domestic producers from cheap foreign goods, the threats to domestic workers from cheap foreign labor, the threats to domestic debtors from foreign creditors. Uh, securitarian protectionism highlights, of course, threats from terrorism and crime, and cultural protectionism highlights threats to the familiar life world from outsiders who differ in things like religion or language or food or dress or bodily behavior or modes of using public space. Now the final element of the repertoire that I want to sketch here pertains not to the what of populist discourse but to the how, to matters of communicational style. This is a topic long discussed in the literature on media and politics, more recently taken up by scholars like Pierre Ostigi and Benjamin Moffat. Um, in Ostigi's terms, the populist style is a low style. It performatively devalues complexity through rhetorical practices of simplicity, directness, and seeming self-evidence. Often this is accompanied by an explicit anti-intellectualism or what's been called an epistemological populism that valorizes common sense uh, and uh, first-hand experience over abstract and experience distant forms of knowledge. The low style is enacted not only through ways of talking, but also through embodied ways of doing and being, involving gesture and tone and sexuality and dress and food. A further aspect of the style, the populist style, opposes common sense and plain speaking to the constraints and restraints of civility and political correctness. Populists not only criticize the rules governing acceptable speech, they relish violating those rules. Through an intention-seeking strategy of provocation, they celebrate their willingness to break taboos, to refuse euphemisms, to disrupt the conventions of polite speech and civilized demeanor. So as anthropologist Gabriela Coleman noted, uh, for example, Trump used conspicuous rudeness, crude sexual references, and a general bad boy demeanor to project an image of authentic proximity to the people in contrast to Clinton's perceived scriptedness and inauthenticity. Okay, so that's the first question about the concept of populism. I can only now um, deal much more briefly with the second explanatory question hinted at in the title of the talk. That is, why populism rather than something else? Why here? That is, for the purposes of this talk, um, why this clustering in Europe and North America? And why now? That is, why clustering in the last four or five years, from 2014 through 2017, 18, and continuing into the present? Um, Answering this question requires um, a layered explanatory strategy that integrates processes occurring on different time scales. So I would distinguish for convenience between structural and conjunctural temporal registers, though clearly this um, 
distinction is somewhat arbitrary. In the structural register, um, which I'm using to mean uh, developments that take place on a temporal scale measured in decades, two sets of trends have expanded opportunities for populism. The first involves what I call a crisis of institutional mediation. Everywhere we see a weakening of political parties and party systems, which encourages politicians to appeal to the people as a whole, rather than to the specific social constituencies represented by parties. Changes in the relation between media and politics, again over a scale of decades, point in the same direction. The pervasive mediatization of politics, that is the commercialization of the media as well, and of course the accelerated development of new communications technologies all make politicians less dependent on um, parties and more inclined to appeal directly to the people using a populist style of communication characterized by dramatization, confrontation, negativity, emotionalization, personalization, and hypersimplification. So transformations of party systems and the relation between politics and media have fostered a kind of generic populism, a heightened tendency to address the people directly rather than through these channels of institutional mediation. A second set of structural transformations, again on the scale of decades, that are at once demographic, economic, and cultural, have encouraged a more specific form of protectionist populism. Most obviously, the large-scale immigration of the last half century has created opportunities for populist claims to protect the jobs, the welfare benefits, the cultural identity and way of life of the people, meaning, of course, the native or autochthonous people against migrants and increasingly in the last 15 years or so against Muslims in particular. Economic transformations um, have fostered a partly overlapping, partly distinct form of protectionist populism. These economic changes have created opportunities for populist appeals to ordinary people against those on top, but also against outside groups and forces seen as threatening our jobs, our prosperity, our economic security. These Transformations are, of course, familiar. They, they include increases in inequalities, the regionally concentrated collapse of manufacturing jobs, the dramatic opening up of national economies, the shifting of risks and responsibilities to individuals through neoliberal modes of governance. Um, and it's worth emphasizing here that social democratic parties did not seize the political opportunity created by these economic shifts their neoliberal turn in recent decades left the field open to other parties on the right as well as the left to advance populist claims to protect domestic jobs and welfare benefits. Now this broad economic story, very familiar, holds for the US as much as for Europe, but of course the dynamics of European integration and the institutional architecture of the EU have provided a distinctive focus uh, for both economic and cultural forms of protectionist populism, thanks to the EU's deep democratic deficit, its imposed policy straitjacket, its constitutional enshrinement of market freedoms, its position as both on top and outside of national polities, and its foundational commitment to downgrading and in key domains dissolving national boundaries. 
the momentous cultural transformations of the last century have also created opportunities for populism, in this case a different kind of protectionist populism oriented to protecting traditional values, hierarchies, and ways of life. Successive waves of emancipatory liberalism since the 1960s have created opportunities for populists to attack political correctness and to speak in the name of an aggrieved, symbolically neglected or devalued majority against the alleged privileging of minorities, including religious, ethnic, and racial minorities, both immigrant and non-immigrant on the one hand, and gender and sexual minorities on the other. Now, the problem with this account of medium-term structural trends extending over decades is that it explains too much. That is, if all of these trends favor populism, then we face the problem of explaining why populism is not ubiquitous. Or we can define populism so broadly that it is ubiquitous, uh, but then we would have to speak not of a populist moment, but of a populist era. And maybe there's something to that, but clearly I think there's something special about the moment of recent years. So thinking of populism as a discursive and stylistic repertoire offers a, a way around this difficulty. That is the trends, these medium-term trends that I just sketched, um, have created in incentives for almost all political actors to draw in some contexts on some elements of the populist repertoire, but thicker forms of populism that draw on the full range of elements from the repertoire are not chronic or ubiquitous. So the populist repertoire is indeed chronically available in contemporary democratic context, but it's not chronically or uniformly activated. The cultural resonance and the political traction of the various elements in the repertoire vary systematically across political and economic and cultural contexts. So then what explains the conjuncture of the last few years? Why now rather than any other time in the last several decades? Um, my argument, and again I'm only gesturing toward it here, is that several independent crises have converged in recent years to create a so-called perfect storm supremely conducive to populism and especially to forms of right-wing populism that unite economic, cultural, and securitarian protectionism. Now crisis um, is I want to make clear, not a neutral category of social analysis. Crisis is a category of social and political practice that is mobilized to do specific political work, and that political work is particularly important for populists. As Benjamin Moffat has recently emphasized, um, crisis is not an external cause of populism, but an intrinsic part of populist um, politics. With the help of the media, populists, and of course other politicians as well, contribute to producing the very crises to which they claim to respond. So when I speak of a converging set of crises, it's a shorthand, I mean a cluster of situations that have been widely construed and represented as crises. The first is of course the financial crash and Great Recession, compounded in Europe by the sovereign debt crisis and the deep institutional crisis of the Eurozone. Obviously this directly provoked the left populist reaction that brought the Eurozone to the brink of collapse, but the economic crisis cast a very long shadow. Its effects were felt well beyond the hardest hit countries and the crisis energized the right as much as the left. Throughout Europe and North America, populists have used the crisis to dramatize economic insecurity and inequality, 
to tap into economic anxieties, and to highlight the disruptions of neoliberal globalization. Outside of Spain and Greece, um, it was, of course, the European refugee crisis of 2015 that most immediately and visibly provoked a populist political reaction. You know the story only too well. I won't say anything about it except to note that it afforded rich opportunities for dramatizing and televisualizing a sense of borders being out of control, an image of multitudes of strangers at the gates, indeed an apocalyptic narrative of Europe being under siege from a seemingly endless supply of desperate men, women, and children willing to face death at sea and violence and exploitation at the hands of smugglers in order to reach the promised land of Germany or Sweden. Like the economic crisis, the refugee crisis cast a long shadow. Its effects were felt throughout Europe and indeed beyond. Trump, for example, characterized Merkel's decision to welcome refugees as insane and promised to send back Syrian refugees arriving in the US since they might be a Trojan horse for ISIS. Uh, fears of borders being out of control were central to the constellation of moods that made Brexit possible. And four years after the peak of the refugee crisis, migration continues to be at the core of Viktor Orban's politics of fear. Um, the cluster of terror attacks of 2015 to 2017 also fed into this perfect storm, allowing the populist right throughout Europe and North America to cultivate and dramatize a sense of insecurity and vulnerability. Um, they enabled the populist right to combine the Schmittian political semantics of friend and enemy with the Huntingtonian thesis of a clash of civilizations between radical Islam and the West. So the perfect storm was created by the coming together or rather the active political tying together of economic refugee and security crises. The populist right throughout Europe, for example, used the um, attacks in Würzburg, Ansbach, and Berlin committed by perpetrators who had applied for asylum in Germany to link the refugee crisis and terrorism. And they, as well as Donald Trump, used the sexual aggressions in Köln, Hamburg, and elsewhere on New Year's Eve 2015 to dramatize the connection between the refugee crisis, ethno-religious demography, cultural difference, and physical insecurity. But much more generally, the Brexit, Trump, and Le Pen campaigns tied together economic, ethno-demographic, cultural, and crime and terrorism-focused insecurities in a newly resonant narrative, a narrative that defined the opposition between open and closed as more fundamental than that between left and right. So in this fundamentally protectionist narrative, the basic interpretive imperative is to protect the people, that is economically, culturally, and physically, against the neoliberal economy, against open borders, against the cosmopolitan culture said to be favored by economic, political, and cultural elites at both European and national levels. So Brexit, Trump, and Le Pen campaigns promised to defend and revive the bounded national economy against savage globalization and the frictionless cross-border movement of goods, labor, and capital. They promised to defend and revive national as well as specifically European and Christian culture and identity from dilution or destruction through large-scale extra-European immigration. 
and they promise to protect public order and security against threats from both outside and inside and against an elite portrayed as soft on crime and terrorism, as enthralled to political correctness, as deluded by the myth of multiculturalism, and as insufficiently cognizant of the threat from radical Islam. Now the final element of the perfect storm is what I call the crisis of public knowledge that is suggested by talk of post-truth era, fake news, alternative facts, and so on. This is not only a matter of fake news, not only a matter of the proliferation of dis and misinformation turned out for profit or propaganda. The crisis of public knowledge is also generated by seemingly positive developments, namely the superabundance and seemingly democratic hyper-accessibility of information in our hyper-connected digital ecosystem. Like other aspects of cultural democratization, this has weakened the authority of mediating institutions that produce and disseminate knowledge, universities, science, especially the press, and as a result, a cloud of suspicion shadows all claims to knowledge. Now, anxieties about the convergence of media, commerce, and new communications technologies are not new. They go back more than a century. But something fundamental has changed in recent years as smartphone and social media use has become nearly universal. Trump's spectacular use of Twitter to appeal um, directly to his huge and active following and to bypass and denounce the mainstream media, even as he skillfully exploited the mainstream media's dependence on him and used Twitter to make news uh, the mainstream media felt it had to cover, would not have been possible even a few years earlier. And of course, Trump is in no way alone in his skillful use of Twitter and more broadly social media to appeal directly to the people. So the crisis of public knowledge presents an opportunity for populists and specifically in the current conjuncture for the populist right. It's an opportunity to further undermine and discredit the press. It's an opportunity to generate and propagate not just alternative facts, but an entire alternative worldview that is not only massively insulated from falsification, but seemingly massively confirmed by a continuous supply of new information. The hyper-connected digital media ecosystem enhances the performative power of populist discourse, the power to create or at least deepen the very crises to which populists claim to respond, the power to sharpen and exacerbate the very divisions, the divisions between the people and the elite, the divisions between insiders and outsiders that populists claim to diagnose and deplore. So let me conclude. I suggested um, above that my structural account of the medium term trends, these decades spanning trends conducive to populism explained too much. My conjunctural account of the perfect storm, you could say, explains both too much and too little. It explains too little in that this highly stylized, generalized sketch, which abstracts from the messy particularities and contingencies of time and place and situated action, can't account for the substantial variations across Europe and North America in degrees and forms of populist politics, but at the same time it explains too much in that, like the account of medium-term trends, it would lead one to expect populism and nothing but populism. But of course, populism is not uniformly uh, strong, even at this populist moment. So let me speculate by way of conclusion um, 
about three factors that can make populism a self-limiting rather than self-feeding phenomenon. The first is what I will call poaching, as is often observed. There's no sharp boundary between populism and non-populism or even anti-populism. Both substantive themes and stylistic devices from the populist repertoire are routinely appropriated by mainstream political actors and sometimes precisely in an effort to combat populist challenges. So a classic uh, example, uh, familiar to most of you, uh, was Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte's um, notorious open letter to all Dutch people published in all major newspapers a few weeks before the two 2017 election in an effort to head off a strong challenge from Geert Wilders, whose anti-immigrant uh, radical right populist party had then been leading in the polls for almost a year. Rutte used simple, direct language to proclaim his identification with the discomfort felt by the hard-working, silent majority in face of immigrants who, quote, misuse our freedom um, to act in ways that are, quote, not normal, and he called on immigrants to, quote, behave normally or leave. So if this is anti-populism, um, you might find yourself wondering, then what is populism? Now, uh, an another example um, was the poor showing of the Danish People's Party in this year's uh, elections, a decline attributed um, by many observers to the fact that the previously incumbent center-right party um, had moved substantially closer to um, the restrictive immigration um, positions advocated by the People's Party. Um, secondly, while populism thrives on crisis and while crisis often sells, um, it doesn't always sell. Just as populists perform crisis and produce crisis in performing it, um, other political actors, and you could think of Merkel or Macron, can be understood as performing non-crisis. And this is one way of thinking about Merkel's famous um, we can do it claim. In the battle between representations of crisis and representations of non-crisis, crisis doesn't always win. Um, and the third and perhaps most important limit on populism is what I will call the limits of enchantment. Populism depends on a kind of enchantment, a kind of faith in the possibility of representing and speaking for the people. It defends, depends on an affective investment in politics and an investment in the idea of popular sovereignty. Um, but at the same time, of course, populism thrives on the lack of faith in the machinery and language of representation. It thrives on the affective disinvestment from politics as usual. So the resonance of populist rhetoric depends on a claim to be different, a claim to exceptionality, a claim to be fundamentally different from politics as usual. But this claim can be discredited. It can ring hollow. The idea of popular sovereignty may be drained of its emotional potency, leaving only cynicism and distrust in its place. And that cynicism, that distrust, can extend to populists themselves. So the affective constellation that sustains populist politics can shade over into a constellation that undermines populist politics as much as it does other forms of representative politics. Now, this doesn't offer uh, reasons for complacency. Cynicism and distrust are scarcely grounds for a robustly democratic public life, but it is important nonetheless not to exaggerate the strength of populism just as it is important to take it seriously. Thank you.